Well, good morning, ladies. It's good to see you this morning after our winter break last week. I'm going to go ahead and have you turn to Acts chapter 15, and while you're doing that, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. As Lori said, my name is Cinda Sullivan, and I've been part of Habits for several years now. I'm married to David, and we have just one son, Jonathan, who just turned 30, so he's been out of the home for a while. And um, I have no grandchildren yet in which I can boast. And I know that those of you who have grandchildren know what I'm talking about. Well, in reality, I know the only thing that I can boast about is that I know the Lord. Better yet, he knows me. I have been saved by faith in Christ alone. My salvation has not come by my works. My salvation is of the Lord And therefore, it is through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And this will be the focus today as we look into Lesson 12 and Acts chapter 15. Um, I'll pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you for each lady that is here this morning. And I thank you for this lesson about grace. Can we ever hear that too much? And I just pray as I speak today that your Holy Spirit would speak through me and that perhaps someone would be enlightened today about grace a little more than they were before they came. We thank you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, in our last lesson, we left off with Paul and Barnabas having returned from their first missionary journey and arriving in Antioch where they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. The gospel was advancing and the church was growing with Gentile believers who were coming to a faith in Christ. Well, it says that Paul and Barnabas remained no little time with the disciples in Antioch. And as we move into chapter 15 in today's lesson... We see in verse 1 that some men, and it doesn't clearly identify them, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. We see that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, and they were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders, where Peter and James will get in on this debate as well. Of course, this is what is referred to, as the Jerusalem Council. Once they arrive in Jerusalem, others rise up, as we read in verse 5, and these men are identified when it says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, after Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, some of the Jews who had a belief in Jesus rise up and say, Hold on. You Gentiles can't be saved by faith in Christ alone. They were not denying that Gentiles could be saved, but rather they were saying that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they must first become Jews. They must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Well, as many commentaries state, this was considered a watershed issue in this book of Acts. For if salvation requires faith plus obedience to the law, then it is not by faith in Christ alone. It meant that in order to receive salvation, you needed Jesus plus something, faith plus works. 
As I looked at this lesson, I asked myself, what was the main issue? What was the main problem these Jews had with salvation by faith in Christ alone? Was it just a misunderstanding? I always try to give the Jews a little slack because, after all, God had given them the law and the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. This is what they had known. This is what God had commanded of the Jews. So had they just not quite come up to speed with all this gospel really means? Could they not quite grasp what a great salvation faith in Christ really is and freedom from law as a means to obtaining one's righteousness? Or did they see the Gentiles as a threat? Was this once exclusive group of people whom God had chosen suddenly feeling threatened, even outnumbered, as they watched an ever-increasing group of Gentiles come to faith in Christ? In other words, was it a pride issue? Well, whatever the reason, these Jews were throwing the new Gentile believers into confusion, not to mention what they had aroused in Paul and Barnabas. Now, when we were first asked to read through the book of Acts last year, it became clear in my mind that I would never look at Paul the same way again, nor would I read his letters the same way. Without the book of Acts, we wouldn't have the history behind those letters, and so they surely wouldn't have the same impact. One such letter is the letter Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. That letter, of course, is Galatians. And it doesn't take long to realize that Paul wrote this letter as a result of this issue of circumcision and the law. There is some debate as to when Paul wrote Galatians, but most believe it was written before the Jerusalem Council, before this scene in Acts 15, as he never mentions uh, this council meeting in his letter. But you can certainly see that Paul wrote Galatians in the heat of this issue, and likely during that extended no little time that he stayed in Antioch, but prior to going to Jerusalem as mentioned in this letter. So we will also refer to Galatians today as we go through this. In fact, we could just read Galatians today, but of course we're not going to do that. Well, Paul didn't see this issue of adding circumcision and law to salvation as a slight deviation from the gospel. He said it was an entirely different gospel. In Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul clearly saw this issue for what it truly was. As already mentioned, it wasn't an issue of Gentiles being saved, nor did Paul see this as an issue of Gentiles becoming Jews in order to be saved. Paul saw it as a threat to grace. What is grace? It is unmerited favor from God. In other words, regarding salvation, you don't work to receive it. The work, that was done for you at the cross. Right before Jesus died, he uttered those familiar words, it is finished. The work of redemption was complete. So this was a threat to grace for sure. Because now the focus was being taken off Jesus' finished work at the cross and the focus was placed on what man must still do. Well, as we look at this today, we will look at circumcision and the law and God's purpose for it, 
And then we will look at the Jerusalem Council and how this issue was resolved. And then we'll finish with some thoughts regarding grace and works. Well, what was circumcision all about? Circumcision was introduced in Genesis 17 when the Lord appeared to 99-year-old Abraham, who at the time was called Abram, and the Lord said he was establishing a covenant between him and Abraham. Genesis 17 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and me multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Well, even prior to Genesis 17, God had made a promise in Genesis 12 when Abraham was 75 years old. And it said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God had made a promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old. And then when he was 99 years old, this promise promise was instituted by a sign. And that sign was circumcision. There was nothing unique about Abraham that God should call him. There was nothing in Abraham that God should find favor in him. After all, even as God made this promise in Genesis 12, that through him all families of the world would be blessed, Abraham doubted. At the time of the promise, Abraham and Sarah had no children for this promise to be fulfilled. Abraham had no offspring. Sarah was too old to have a child, and so they devised a plan that Abraham would produce a child through a younger woman named Hagar. If you know that story, you know how that turned out. It didn't turn out so well, because that wasn't God's plan. God had planned that Abraham and Sarah would have a a son, that his name would be Isaac, and through Isaac would come Jacob, And then that line would continue on down through King David and ultimately to Jesus. So even as Abraham stumbled, God remained true to his promise. Circumcision was a physical and outward sign that a promise had been made. An everlasting covenant between God and Abraham. If you looked up the word circumcision in your glossary, you see that over time, circumcision became to the Jew a sign of superiority. And in that definition, it was noted that a daily prayer of strict Jewish males was to thank God that he was neither a woman, a Samaritan, nor a Gentile. God intended circumcision to be a reminder throughout the generations of Abraham that through his offspring, an everlasting covenant had been made. So, walk before me and be blameless, 
Not in order to receive the promise, but because of the promise. Abraham was a man who had been called by God, who responded to that calling in faith, and in that calling was obedient to receive the sign of circumcision, the sign of an everlasting covenant, a covenant of grace, unmerited favor, a gift from a promise-keeping God. And circumcision, the sign of this covenant, should have been a sign of humility, to walk humbly in faith before God, not a sign of superiority. Well, the law came after the promise. The law was given to Moses by God at Mount Sinai. However, it was never intended as a means of salvation. In short, the purpose of the law was threefold. Number one, it identified God's standard for holy and righteous living. Number two, it made man conscious of his own sin. Man could now see through the requirements of the law that he is not righteous. And number three, it should have pointed them to Christ, the only one in whom righteousness was found, in whom one's sin could be forgiven and therefore made right with God. The law would reveal their sin and therefore their need for a savior. It was not a means of obtaining one's own righteousness. As I was thinking, <clears throat> as I was thinking about obeying laws, I couldn't help but think of the agonizing speed limit 40 law. I live on a road in the country and no matter what direction I travel, a fair amount of time is spent trying to obey this law. This road is not heavily traveled. It is flat and smooth and so very conducive to speeds well over 40 miles an hour. However, that is the law. I know that law very well. I can recite that law and I know where every speed limit sign is on that road. And every time I approach that sign, I am reminded I'm breaking the law. (laughs) That law has no power over me, even though I know that law, nor does that sign for that matter. And I've learned all too well that disobeying that law is about $200. (laughs) And I have known that twice. My best traveling companion on that road is my cruise control, and I set it when I leave my house. Even if, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> here we go. Even as I, <clears throat> even as I know that law and the consequences of not obeying it, I still find myself trying to outwit it. I happen to know that most police officers will not stop me if I'm within a certain range of that speed limit. I know it's close to, but not to exceed 10 miles an hour. So I usually set my cruise control at 46, maybe 47. On days when I don't want to take a risk, I set it at 43 or 44. I'm still breaking the law. In order to keep that law perfectly, I would have to keep it for every inch I drive to my destination and back home. And that doesn't take care of the rolling stop at the stop sign law and the passing on the double line law, or any other law of the road. Laws are guardians, and they simply reveal what is expected of a person by those who make the laws. And in some cases, they reveal you're breaking the law. Now, obviously, the Jews were not required to keep the 40-mile-an-hour speed limit law as one of the laws of Moses. But hopefully you get my point. The law is good, 
Living under God's law brings harmony and blessing, but there is no power in a law to make one obey. It could never make one righteous, but rather makes one aware of the depth of sin and therefore utter dependence on God. Laws have no power. Laws don't change your heart. While the law can reveal your heart, it has no power to change your heart. And so, law can be a yoke of slavery around one's neck. Paul said in Galatians 3:23 and 24, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. If you remember Stephen's speech in Acts 7, he said, if you had paid attention to Moses, if you had listened to the prophets, you would have recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of your law. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish your law. I came to fulfill your law. The law pointed to Christ, their promised Messiah. So what took place at the Jerusalem council and how was this issue with the Gentiles resolved? Well, verse 7 says that after, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and spoke. Peter reminded them that he had long before been chosen to take this message to the Gentiles. It was Peter who God had sent to Cornelius, the first uncircumcised Gentile convert to Christianity, as we saw in Acts 10. And it was Peter who God had revealed in a vision that God shows no partiality, no difference in Jew or Gentile. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, that everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness through his name. Peter was there when the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius when he heard the word of truth about Jesus. And Peter added this in verse 8 and 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter knew that it was not the outer sign of circumcision, but rather the inner circumcision of the heart that mattered. Even as far back as Deuteronomy 10.16, it says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Paul said in Romans 2.29, Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter or law. Peter knew that hearing the word of truth is what cut to the heart of Cornelius. Just as it had his own heart, it was always a heart issue, and the law cannot change your heart. Just as law had not changed Peter's heart or Paul's heart. Peter then says in verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. When the Jews were saying that Gentiles be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, they weren't only adding a yoke of slavery around their neck, around the neck of the the Gentiles, they were returning to that same yoke themselves. Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Peter recognized what was really at stake because no matter how you looked at it, adding law to grace, Jesus plus something could only mean one thing. Christ's work on the cross was not sufficient for salvation. 
if you needed something else. Galatians 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. In other words, you can't have it both ways. You either trust in the law for salvation or you trust in grace alone. And if you want to trust in law, then you will be judged by the law and you will stand condemned. Law is good, but you have to keep the whole law and you can't. Grace sets you free. Paul said in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see why Peter said that this was putting God to the test. Because adding law to grace was a total disregard for what his son Jesus had done at the cross and the all-sufficient power of the cross. And then Peter says this in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. What Peter says here is really huge. He has argued that Gentiles are saved by faith in Christ alone, and now he says, and we Jews are saved the same way. Peter is saying that circumcision and the law have no bearing on one's salvation, not even for the Jew. The law has no power to save. The law was to point them to the one who could. When Peter had finished, it was Paul and Barnabas' turn, and they give even more convincing proof by relating all the signs and wonders that God had done through them. Even without law and circumcision, Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and receiving the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to the believing Gentiles just as it had those first 120 at Pentecost, proving salvation was by faith in Christ alone. And then finally, there was the statement of James, remembering what the Lord had said through the Old Testament prophet Amos when he had said, and all the nations who are called by my name. And James inserts in there, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So the solution for resolving this debate came as these men gathered together to reason concerning this truth from what they had been told by Christ himself and the miracles that had confirmed it through the Holy Spirit, and by what the Lord had made known of old through the the Old Testament prophets. And in all of it, God was fulfilling his promise he had made with Abraham before the law was even given. Paul speaks to this promise to Abraham in Galatians 3, and I wish we had time to read it, but he explains that the offspring God had promised to Abraham had its fulfillment in Christ. And then Paul says this in Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Christ is the offspring, the everlasting of the covenant promise God made with Abraham. And when you are in Christ, you are an heir to that promise. That comes by faith alone. After I read through Galatians, I thought it was probably good that Paul wrote this letter before it was settled at the council in Jerusalem as he writes with with such fervor and there is no doubt the threat that he saw this issue was to the gospel of grace. Had the issue already been settled or, or if there had not been an issue, perhaps he would not have dealt with it 
to the extent that he did in a letter. This way, this issue of law and grace is clear for every generation to read and to know. Faith in Christ alone was always the plan. And it doesn't matter if you are Jew, Greek, slave, or free. And it does not matter if you are man or woman. For circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit through faith in Christ. One thing I've learned through Scripture is that as God is speaking to a particular generation, He also speaks to all generations. We can all fall into the trap of mixing grace and law, faith and works to our salvation. And if we are honest as Christians, we have probably all struggled with it at one time. When we speak of works, it almost sounds honorable or even sacrificial to think, surely there must be something I must do to earn my salvation. But in time, as we get to know these scriptures, we see the truth. There is nothing one can do to merit salvation. That was done at the cross. I would never intentionally tell someone that they could receive salvation by works. Or that once you receive salvation, there is something you must do in order to keep your salvation. Our salvation doesn't begin with Christ and end with us perfecting it. It is freeing to get this truth settled in your heart and in your mind. This is not, however, a freedom that gives license to sin, but rather freedom from striving to follow the rules in order to find favor with God. The motivation to walk humbly before God no longer comes in rules, but now comes through a relationship with the very one who has made it all possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love what one commentary says, Grace does not negate the need for moral character. It empowers it. In the beginning, I said I had wondered what the main issue was behind these Jews denying faith in Christ alone. Why would they not want this freedom from law? I said maybe it was the fact that they hadn't grasped what a great salvation faith in Christ really is. After all, this would have been a seismic shift in the Jews' thinking over what they had known for hundreds of years. And you see the sensitivity to that in them telling the Gentiles to honor the, the, um, the Jews' dietary laws and to abstain from uh, some of those other things. And, and you also see it in Paul having Timothy circumcised later in chapter 16, verse 3. And I think that speaks to Paul's motive and his heart for the Jews. Even though he would now primarily speak to the Gentiles, he did not want anything to hinder the Jews coming to faith in Christ alone. After all, there was nothing wrong with circumcision. Jesus was circumcised. What was wrong was the belief it was a means of salvation. And you guys can talk about that more in your groups this morning. I also said perhaps it was a pride issue. The Jews no longer saw themselves exclusively um, in this call to grace. I think both might be true. But Paul said something in the last chapter in Galatians chapter 6 that made me pause. After he talked extensively about this issue of law and grace, Paul gives another reason for these Jews not proclaiming salvation in Christ alone. Galatians 6.12 says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Jews who were coming to Christ were being persecuted. All the apostles were persecuted, and Paul certainly being one of them. Perhaps even some who knew Christ 
didn't want the persecution that came from proclaiming Jesus' name. As I pondered that statement, it made me pause and wonder, would I ever be guilty of that? Or even yet, could I ever unwittingly give the impression that works are all that is necessary for salvation? I was reminded of something that happened to me several years ago. I shared my faith with someone, and at the time, I remember how I weighed every word I said. I didn't want to come across as judgmental, but rather thoughtful. And afterwards, I thought, that went pretty well. And then in a few days, I received a lengthy letter in the mail telling me how narrow and judgmental I am. And I was devastated. I had not wanted that to be the case, and I thought I had worked all around it with my words. I thought I had used words that were gentle and respectful while being truthful. But it was the thought that came after reading that letter that has caused me to ponder what Paul said in Galatians about not wanting to suffer persecution. I remember after reading that letter thinking, evangelism is not my gift. And best not mention that name, Jesus. I'll let my life, my works, tell my story. I'll do all those things that identify me as a Christian. After all, these are all are responses to a saving grace. I know they are. I know that my works are not my attempt to gain my salvation, but rather they are a response. When I placed my faith in Christ, I received the power of the Holy Spirit in me. I am aware of the work that he's doing in me. I even get that statement which James says that faith without works is dead. I understand that doesn't mean works is added to faith for my salvation. Because I realize that this is such a great salvation that it cannot but produce good works. The Holy Spirit is living and active. I know that. I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. This is a transforming and powerful faith. And it can't help but produce good works in those who submit to its power. I know the greatest work about me is what is being done in me. My response is what comes through me. I know that when God looks at me, he does not see my sin or my own righteousness. He sees the righteousness of his son. By faith in Christ alone, I have been declared righteous. I get this theology. But this study in Acts has convicted me And especially as I think about Paul and each time I read that back page of our lesson, which begins, for we cannot but speak. Our last page of every lesson always includes a quote from one declaring the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My life should reflect that transforming power. But if my words never declare his name, then what message do I unwittingly imply to a world that is lost and desperately needs to hear about grace. Works are good. They are a declaration that grace exists. But works do not, nor could they ever tell the whole story. I love what David Cook says in his book, Teaching Acts. He says, things that go without saying need to be said. It goes without saying that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. But it still needs to be said. I have been saved 
by grace. We even need to remind each other. Would allowing others to only see the outward signs and not hearing about grace suggest that the standards are even higher than what God requires for salvation? And all so that I am not persecuted? Or even worse, so that I don't offend someone? All the while knowing that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is what cuts to the heart. How many times in Acts have we heard that when they heard the truth about Jesus, they were cut to the heart? Only the transforming power of hearing the gospel of grace can save. The gift of the Holy Spirit becomes evident as he transforms the life and produces the works. Everywhere Paul went, he was persecuted for Jesus. No one knew better than Paul the risk of proclaiming the name of Jesus. But no one knew better than Paul the freedom from bondage of the law that came with God's grace through faith in Christ. I love Paul's response at the end of Galatians. After he'd laid this all out and really reprimanded those who were turning to a different gospel. He ends with these words. And in these words you can hear Paul's frustration. From now on let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. It's as if Paul is saying, you want to boast about your circumcision? I'll boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you require an outward sign of my faith, forget my circumcision. You look at my scars. Paul wasn't in any way saying that he had received salvation because he suffered well. He was saying he had received salvation because Jesus suffered in his place, and so he wasn't afraid of suffering the suffering that came from proclaiming Jesus' name. It was his mission. Paul said in Galatians 6.15, For neither, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul knew the greatest work about him was what had been done in him. Paul, along with all the apostles, responded as a new creation in Christ, and so became like Christ, and lived a life devoted to telling others about Christ. May those of us who belong to Christ proclaim this same message. Salvation is through grace alone. It's a gift. You can't work to receive it. It comes by faith alone, by trusting in the work of someone other than yourself. And that is Christ alone. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Father, I thank you for this grace. I thank you for your truth. And may we go out and boldly proclaim that to others. Thank you for your love for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.